If anyone ever says to you, what's a satire, and you want to look clever, what a satire is, right? A satire is when it's the same as here, but there's animals in it. And that's why Animal Farm by George Orwell is the most satirical novel there is. Because there's not just one animal in that, there's loads of different ones. Not our words, but a garbled version of the words of 90s stand-up comedian and self-proclaimed prophet of our times, Stuart Lee. A weary satire merchant who may or may not one day appear on this very podcast. He won't do that. Which is, of course, Smith and War Talk About Satire, a podcast in which I, Adam Smith, and my colleague Joe War talk about how satire works. This week we'll be talking about satire's relationship with the form that gave us all of Orwell's animals, the novel. Adam and I are lecturers in 18th and 19th century literature at York St John University. I'm the 19th one and Adam is the 18th. And together we co-direct an ongoing project called Satire, Birth, Death and Legacies. And that's a project we hope to mercilessly cannibalise, repurpose and rehash in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research. This is the podcast where we talk about the form, function and future and history of satire. It's a lot of things of satire and from time to time when we can pull the right strings we're joined by other people talking about satire as well. Adam, tell everyone about our guest. Today we'll be joined by Dr Helen Williams, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature at Northumbria University where she specialises in the works of Lauren Stern, the author of a book we'll hear more about today, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, and John Cleland, the author of Fanny Hill. Um, I've known Helen for a long time now and I know that she's not only exactly the right person to talk to about the relationship between satire and the novel but she's also excellent company so I fully expect this to be a brilliant episode of our podcast so uh, no pressure Helen. First things first though what is a satirical novel? Well that's really difficult isn't it because to go back to the example from before George Orwell's Animal Farm is clearly a satire. It's fairly clear what is being satirised. It's clear that there are lots of animals in it and it's clear what we're meant to take from it. But what's harder is to kind of think of lots of other books that are as obviously works of satire, or novels, I should say, rather than books, that are as obviously works of satire in the same way as George Orwell's Animal Farm. So I don't know. When I say satirical novel, Adam, you say what? Well, my uh, <laughs> well. my mind always goes as it so often does to the 18th century, and like I was just thinking when you were speaking there about works which are so emphatically and obviously altogether holistically a satire of another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 18th century is a century which is often described as the one where the the novel rose, and a lot of those early examples were doing satirical work in that they were they were parodying other novels, and by the mm-hmm. time you get to Tristram Shandy, the novel itself as a form. So Samuel Richardson wrote Pamela, this massive, as you know, this massive epistory book of letters written by a young girl writing back to her father and trying to be virtuous, and, and she's concerned with virtue and such. I do know that. And then, yeah, just in case uh, listeners at home have had the misfortune of somehow missing the opportunity yeah. to read Pamela. This is for you, listeners. It's for the listeners yeah. at home. But... Um, and then Henry Fielding writes Shamala, which is which is a uh, comes out a few years later, and it's the letters that Pamela didn't write to her guardian, where you find out all the sort of bawdy things that she's got got up to, and all of the ways in which she's been passing herself off as as more naive than she actually is to to use her own erotic capital to get what she wants, and so on and so forth. So I mean, but that, but I was thinking that is a parody. It's not necessarily a yeah. satire; it's a parody of Pamela. But then it it does do historical work in that it's also. I think it is making a point about uh, chastity not necessarily being equivalent to virtue. Yeah. And the emphasis that Pamela, the real Pamela puts on virtue is perhaps, uh, on chastity as a signifier for virtue is perhaps misguided and doesn't necessarily mean that she is as virtuous as Richardson suggests. So 
that, in my mind, I would be quite happy to say that is a satirical novel. Mm. And then in the 19th century, I suppose, with the <clears throat> with the kind of rise of the classic realist text, then there's less space for... It, it, it kind of doesn't couple up, does it, being a realist text and a realist novelist and doing huge amounts of satire. So you have moments of satire in Dickens, and obviously there's Thackeray and... Um, and Charlotte Bronte will kind of be a bit satirical for a little while, but she's not writing satirical novels. And then there are the comic novels of the later 19th century, like Diary of a Nobody and Three Men on a Boat, but they are much more often talked about as comic novels than as satirical novels. And they're certainly not satirical novels in the sense that Tristram Shandy is a satirical novel. Because I was just thinking, the, the place in which, for a very long time we first encountered sat- the idea of satire on the literature programme at York St John. I mean, it's slightly changed mm. now because we've just changed the programme. But it was uh, Jane Austen, Northanger yes. Abbey. And all of the discussions about what is satire happened in Northanger <coughs> Abbey, which is, which I wouldn't necessarily say is a satirical novel, but mm. then people do often talk about Jane Austen as, a, as having this satir- satirical sensibility. Yeah. Um, but it, that's, it's parody, isn't it? And, it? and there's an archness to Austen. Yeah. But, she, I mean... She's she's kind of satirising... She's satirising young girls much more than she's satirising the genre of the gothic mm. novel, isn't she? And and she does do that a little bit, but it's not it's not the sustained focus of the text, is it? But no. yeah, that, that, is, that was the way into talking about satire for a long time, wasn't it? That Jane Austen satirising. And it's interesting as well, because when we did talk about Jane Austen and satire... I think once we'd explained in all good faith what we thought satire was and how satire works and talked about holding mirrors up to things, we, I think, quite often led students to look for some much more serious satirical project in Northanger Abbey than is actually there. So they were kind of ready to see it as a, a brutal, biting satire on gender norms of the period or the, of, of gothic novels or romance or whatever. And I'd not... And that never quite persuaded because it isn't. It's not. It isn't that. But it would have been if yeah. it had been a satirical novel. But it's a novel yeah. with a satirical element. Yeah. Um, which is, but I mean, it's not even a comedy novel, is it? Northern Abbey. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably supposed to be. Is it, is it supposed I don't to be? Know. Know. <laughs> Some people um, think it's funny, don't they? Yeah. Don't As a Shamla, I was just thinking about Shamla again. Shamla then led to Joseph Andrews, which was Henry Fielding's next novel, which is about a relative of. Of Shamler, and again, it's, it's part of that parodic project, but then it starts to take on a life of its own as he gets more and more interested in the novel as a form, and ultimately writes Tom Jones, which I think is re- re- read pretty much as a, as not a work of parody or satire, mm. but as a distinct novel. But I, I think at that moment, you have two divergent paths. Um, one, which I think does lead to Austin or Radcliffe or the Gothic, and ultimately to the realist novel and everything that happens later. And then the other one, where you get things like Tobias Smollett's Humphrey Clinker or uh, Henry Mackenzie's Man of Feelings, mm-hmm. um, which I think are they're ninety eight percent parodies and sat- parody and satire, which ultimately I think is the road that leads to Tristram Shandy that Helen will be talking about in a few yeah. minutes' time. But then, where does that road go after Tristram Shandy? Well, that was what I was just going to say. Yeah. Is I don't know well, whether. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've been wondering as we're talking whether actually the novel is is just not a form that massively comfortably lends itself to to being satirical because everything we've talked about in earlier podcasts or quite often we've talked about 
cartoons and images and art mm. and stand up and and Twitter even, and those things kind of they certainly seem to be where satire is now. So is it is it that the novel just isn't the ideal or the most natural home for a sustained project of mm. satire? Yeah, because it's a longer form and yeah, and because maybe that isn't what people go to novels for, and yeah. it isn't where they go for satire. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is, so I think yeah. uh, we need to talk to someone. Yeah, phone yeah, phone yeah. a friend. <laughs> that's a really good idea. I'll call Dr. Helen Williams at Northumbria University, senior lecturer in English literature. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks, relieved, yeah. relieved to hear yeah. from you. Because we were just talking about Tristram Shandy, and I think we were both wondering, what is it about? And is it satire? And what is it, indeed, actually? And the jury's been out since about 1760. Um, <laughs> a contributor to the London magazine then memorably said, Oh, rare Tristram Shandy, what shall we call thee? Rabelais, Cervantes, what? Is it a satire in the style of Rabelais or... In fact, is it more like a novel, a father of the European novel, Cervantes is referenced there. But to be honest, I think both of those references are a bit out of date by the time 1759 comes around. And that fact helps underline how far readers just didn't know how to react, actually, when Tristram Shandy burst onto the scene. Um, and still, we actually argue about what to call it, whether it's a novel or whether it's satirical. And so what do you think? The situation is complicated by the fact that Tristram Shandy was published in five instalments between 1759 and 67, and each one was slightly more or less satirical. Um, and I think it started off quite satirical and then became a little bit more sentimental. And so for readers today, I think it's easiest to see Tristram Shandy as a book about writing a book and one which gets out of hand in hilariously haphazard ways. And even if we are reluctant to call it a novel, I am not that reluctant, to be honest, I think it at least needs to be credited as a text which became foundational to the novel as we now understand it. Are there specific targets that Stern is looking to satirise? I think that differs on which part of Tristram Shandy you're reading. And certainly the first instalment um, was very satirical and its targets were local and identifiable people. But later instalments, um, Stern is sort of responding to trends of, of the period and to reviews of his, his earlier work as well. And um, later instalments, readers might actually find that target of, that, of satire predominantly in those volumes might be something like sensibility. But I think what is perhaps most consistent across Tristram Shandy as a whole is Stern's targeting of the novel itself and of the idea of narrative and perhaps most of all reading and what readers' expectations are, what they bring to a text, because they systematically overturns those expectations. So I'm just trying to understand, Helen, why does Stern do this? Why, why is he doing all this satire? I think for Stern it comes from a a professional background actually that he had been writing political satire uh, for money before he wrote Tristram Shandy and it seemed to him to be the natural way to proceed I think and his comedy came out I think in, in satirical in tone as it developed. How interested do you think he was in reforming the behaviour of his readers was that? He begins writing satire before Tristram Shandy anyway with the idea that satire has a purpose and he's writing um, his first satire a political romance which came out in 1759 as a sort of culmination of a petty political dispute 
and in in a bid to to win an argument, if you like, a political argument locally in, in York about church politics. Huh. And if this doesn't work, you know, this this is a this is a means by which Stern to, to to find a way to succeed, to be successful, and to become financially a little bit more independent. And ultimately, it fails. You know, a political romance is is suppressed. It's seen to be hugely offensive, and for that reason, he has to change tack. And we get the, the early genesis of Tristram Shandy as a result of that. And it's almost because he realizes that that kind of satire that biting satire if you like that satire which targets individuals for a political cause is not necessarily going to do his main work of of sending him down in posterity as as an author and so he has this wonderful exchange with robert dodsley the publisher when he offers tristram shandy to to him and and offers it as a satirical work actually and dodsley comes back to stern Presumably, the letter which Dodsley sends back is not, has not survived. But when Stern replies, he says, "Okay, I've taken out the locality from the book and I've made the satire more general." So it's very clear, actually, that Tristram Shandy, in its early draft stages, was a much more targeted, biting satire than it then became. And it's almost like Stern begins working in a much more good-natured satirical mode, where his targets are less often individuals and more frequently characteristics if you like or types in society which he pokes fun at in a much more good humored way things like like learning like the like medicine and the law and this idea of sensibility which is emerging at mid-century does anybody ever get um satirical with stern has he ever satirized do you know what? i was thinking about this and I, I can't think of any examples and i wonder whether this is because he died quite quickly after tristan Shandy. <laughs> <laughs> and i don't know whether anybody really becomes a, like a major target of satire after they're dead actually that might be another question but i mean he dies in 1768 so there's not there's not a lot of time for that and i think actually that that Stern satirizes himself so well. So in sort of um, fashionable circles in London and on the continent, he's pretending to be Parson Yorick, who is arguably another version of himself, you know, the, the fun, witty Parson character. And he's also pretending to be Tristram, his eponymous narrator, the sort of comedy slapstick type character, and sending himself up so frequently that it probably becomes quite difficult actually for other people to target him as well. I mean, there's the Sterniana which emerged, you know, from, from the first installment of, of Tristram Shandy, people were trying to, authors were trying to imitate and parody his works and also to satirise him and, and his work. And, but they're never, they're never as good as the original actually, so they're not ever that effective. So he can't be satirised because he's too good and too dead. <laughs> If you want to evade being the subject of satire, you either have to die or satirise yourself. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned the sort of regional origins of, of, of Stern's satire. What was the satirical scene like in the late 18th century? And what was it like around Stern? Well, Stern was embroiled in newspaper politics in, in York, which were very particular and very detailed and very difficult to understand to for anyone who's not part of that circle at, at, at that time. And yet Stern was quite clearly looking outwards for inspiration to, to London and certainly to Ireland, to, to people like Swift for inspiration, who's clearly a, a big fan of Swift. 
But I mean, there were, there were some very interesting things that are going on at mid-century with satire in the likes of the work of Lady Mary Watley Montague, but particularly in terms of form, if you think of somebody like Letitia Pilkington, who brings out her memoirs, which are a fascinating sort of combination of poetry and prose, both of which have have satiric aims, if you like, in, in terms of sending up the society of the period and, and thinking about what its its weaknesses and foibles are. Who do you think might be a modern equivalent to Stern, if any? Oh, goodness. Anybody carrying that, that torch today? <laughs> Steve Coogan? Steve Coogan, good answer, <laughs> good answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why Steve Coogan? Well, I mean... I feel like he must know and appreciate Stern through his appearance in A Cock and Bull Story, but also the, the series, The Trip, which, you know, been, especially even the, the more recent episodes, it feels so Sternian to me in the sense that he has that wonderful knack of self-consciousness at the same time as he's, as he's developing character and thinking about the appropriateness of the form, certainly when he brought out Eye Partridge. The <laughs> mock celebrity autobiography. I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is so stunning. With Steve Coogan, you never know really if he is Steve Coogan or Alan Partridge or Steve Coogan playing Steve Coogan, even in interviews. Exactly. Or, yeah. I mean, I remember I got I Partridge for Christmas one year, and then the next year I got Easily Distracted, which is Steve Coogan's celebrity autobiography. Yeah. And then is even that is very. I don't for a moment believe that Steve Coogan wrote that. <laughs> but there, but it is very knowing, and the fact that they came out in such close proximity, he must know what he's doing. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, he, he did say in interviews that he hadn't read Tristram Shandy before he was offered Cock and Bull Story. But then, and then, but certainly with the, the trip anyway, with him and Rob Brydon sort of bouncing off each other on this literary journey, where the main aim is for them to apparently and um, do sort of food criticism or whatever it's a sentimental journey all over for me if you know what I mean watching that for all of the references to romantic poetry and the rest of it which again I think adds to the to the sort of self-consciousness of, of what he's trying to and the the, the full literariness almost of, of the exercise I think is is wonderfully stunning and yeah so what one of the questions that we've been asking over and over again on this podcast and it probably speaks to our own uh, angst I guess is <laughs> does satire actually work? I think for Stern initially it didn't work you know when he was trying to do that quite niche political satire in a bid to um, sort of secure preferment in a local ecclesiastical context and however when he changed tack and he started developing Tristram Shandy which as we've mentioned, is, is more than anything else, probably a satire on narrative and on reading, then that certainly worked in the sense that it propelled him to fame in exactly the way that he had hoped that it would. But it also worked in effect and change. I mean, arguably Tristram Shandy is, is a foundational text in, in the novel as we now understand it. And still novelists today claim to be inspired by Stern's experimental legacy do you think, Helen, that Stern might have any advice for uh, satirists today? Hmm. I think if you were to learn from his own experiences, it would be to, to think about making satire more general. That was certainly, you know, a, a rule that he followed and it worked for him. He's cre- that, that is a statement against reactionary kind of satire, isn't it? For Stern, satire was always quite a creative response to what he thought people wanted. So in... Mm. in just as much as it wasn't reactionary, it was reactionary to 
So it's quite a canny mix of like populism and elitism and doing it right, isn't it? Well, I think that's the end of our questions, Helen. Yes, thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah. Well done. Have a great start of the term. Oh, Cheers, Helen. You, you too. too. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Helen today, Joe. Yeah, that was really useful. Yeah. I think there's probably just enough time left for us to tell folks where they can find us and our work online. Yeah, why don't you do that? Tell the folk. Yeah, okay. So if you want to find us and our work online, folks just need to go onto Google and search for satire, births, deaths, and legacies in any particular order. That'll take us to our website where you can find out everything about our project and all the previous episodes of our podcast and also keep abreast of forthcoming episodes of our podcast yeah and it's probably better if you google it in the right order it is and if you want to hit us up on socials uh, you can find us on twitter uh, at satire no more or individually i'm adam smith at elemental adam joe you're uh at ward js and also if you want to if you've heard the podcast and you want to it would just be really helpful if you could tell us you've heard the podcast because we yeah. uh especially we, if it changed you yeah if it changed you in any way because we need to demonstrate that we have an audience um who are benefiting from, or at least engaging with this podcast if we want to continue happened. doing it don't we yeah. yeah so so what's happening on the next episode joe next episode we're going to be talking to wendy mcglushan from the university of aberdeen about satire and the visual image that sounds great it will be great <laughs> so that's all from us today thanks for listening uh, stay satirical and yeah. uh, goodbye listeners goodbye <laughs>